Welcome to Short Course, episode 98, for April 14th, 2023. I'm your host, Ben Barry. This week, I just wanted to talk about a few smaller, sort of miscellaneous things that I really haven't had a way to, to fit into a larger topic, but I thought were, were worth addressing. So I think this will be a, a quick one. Not really a, a whole lot to talk about this week, but uh, I'll end it with something else you can go listen to if you have time. So we'll uh, jump right in. The first thing in both of these first two items are criticisms or comments that uh, about me or what I've said uh, that I wanted to add some nuance to because neither of them are really entirely incorrect. But the the first one has to do with some comments I've made in the past saying that I think production should be rolled back to the level of allowed modifications around something like 2017. And I think it's, I don't even remember when, when I said this, it's been a while, but, but that was just sort of one possible suggestion of a way forward that would, that would get us back to making production something more like a stock gun division. Now, I would hope that everyone that is a regular listener of the podcast would know that I'm not actually that necessarily attached to that particular rule set as though they were, you know, handed down on, on stone tablets. It's just, that is, that is one way to possibly approach the goal of getting back to production being more of a stock gun division. Now that said, obviously I've also been an advocate of moving more towards IPSC production, which in one way would be a a step more towards restricting modifications, but it would also be a a step forward in moving the, the capacity from 10 to 15. And so it's not really a, a narrow, I just want to turn the, the clock back. I just, I would like to see the sport have a viable place for relatively stock guns that don't require extensive modification. And when looking for models to follow, one way is to look to the past and say, you know, what, what worked in the past. One way is to look abroad, say what is working in, in IPSC overseas. And then obviously the, the third way, which is much more of the way the conversation is going, is to say, if we were starting from a blank sheet of paper, what would we end up with? And I think I think there is actually a, a lot of interesting discussion to be had there. For example, I think if we were writing the rules for something like production today, and I, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, but it, it bears repeating, the, the, the special deference that is given to double action, single action guns, which arguably made sense in 2000 when when production was coming around when striker guns weren't quite as common as they were and a lot of militaries a lot of police departments were still issuing double single guns that that deference to double single as the as the 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 main sort of duty gun and requiring that production guns be double single and then you know well i guess a you know a, a glock trigger is kind of more like a double action trigger than it is like a single action one those those rules made somewhat sense in in 2000 but the era of of the double action single action gun as it looks to me is is over i i don't know that the the mechanism ever really made sense when you look at it i mean it is it is one of those tools kind of like putting a, a three round burst into a gun instead of full auto where you try and make the the mechanism of the gun more complex to make up for giving it to uh users who lack in training there, there's basically no to my way of looking at things no significant advantage to a double action single action gun over something single action only and i mean you look at you look at the 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 evolution of firearms history right you have the the 1911 
in obviously 1911. You have the Browning High Power in the 1930s. Both of these were single action cocked and locked guns. That just made sense. If you pull the trigger and the gun goes click, you don't pull a, the double action and hit it again. You rack the slide, eject the round, and, and, and move on with life. And then we kind of go into this weird post-World War II era where the in in World War II, the, the Germans have the, the P-38, which has this weird slide-mounted decocker safety thing that drops the hammer and allows you to, to, to pull the first shot double action. And, I mean, that that mechanism is basically continued. It was evolved into the Beretta 92, which was the service weapon of, of the U.S. military for 30 years from the, what, 1985 to 2017. So, yeah, in, in the middle of that time, having having double single guns be the 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 standard for duty guns kind of made sense but if we were if we were looking at a at making a, a sort of stock gun what do departments issue what do militaries issue if we we're trying to look at that as well as you know what people actually concealed carry having a special carve out for for double single doesn't make any more sense than than some of the other historical carve outs that have sort of outlived their practical usefulness in in IPSE like 38 super and increasingly 40 smith and wesson and so to me, you know, if, if we w- take that sort of blank sheet of paper approach and say, what, what should a, not necessarily completely stock division, but a division in which double stack nine millimeter polymer and metal frame guns can compete on a relatively even footing, you know, what would that division look like having a, a special carve out for either double single or striker guns? Well, the advantage goes to striker guns at this point. I mean, you can just get a good short crisp striker trigger that I think functionally will it be as light as a pound and a half 2011 trigger no but I don't I don't think in any practical sense the pound and a half trigger is a significant competitive advantage over a three or four pound short crisp striker trigger pull and so that's one of those places where if if we're going to set off and move away from the past and move away from trying to stay in alignment with IPSC, which does have this carve out and recognizes the sort of special status of double single guns, then I'm fine with that. I mean, most of the most of the current double single guns could just start cocked and locked. And I think there's a very good case to be made that that's actually the safer option. Arguably, holstering a double single gun that does not have a firing pin block with a round in the chamber and the hammer lowered on the firing pin, like a Shadow 2 or a any CZ Shadow that doesn't have a firing pin block, holstering a, a loaded chamber hammered down on the firing pin gun like that is, I think, pretty equivalent to holstering a, a 1911 or a 2011 with the hammer cocked and the, the thumb safety off. The only difference is if a, if a, if a hammer gun like that with no firing pin block, with the hammer down on, you know, resting on the firing pin, if it were to fall and hit the ground, it's not just a danger to the shooter, but possibly to a bystander as well. And and I say possibly, but this has actually happened. USPSA has not addressed it directly, but if you if you look around, people have talked about this. There was an incident at a range in upstate New York in November 2020, uh, a man by the name of John Koziol, I believe, uh, from what I've been able to read, USPSA number L2514, originally joined in 1994. This is a guy who'd been in the sport for a long time, and he happened to be running the timer at an indoor match. And the 
from what the reports are, again, I, you know, this is all secondhand from what I could gather on the internet, but the, the shooter loaded his shadow to manually decock the hammer, went to put it in the holster, missed the holster, dropped the gun, it fell on the hammer, and the bullet fired upward, which if you think about the physics of a gun falling on its hammer, the bullet is always going to fire upward. It was like the the, the business with the, the SIG P320s firing when, when dropped on the back of the slide. The, <laughs> it's inherently a dangerous orientation where... Again, if we're imagining the scenario where someone is is holstering a, a 1911 or a 2011 or, or any other single action gun with uh, the hammer cocked but no safety on, at worst the gun is going is pointed down. It might shoot the person who's holstering it in the leg, which is by no means a a safe injury. But they're likely to be the if anything if anyone's injured, it's the person doing the holstering, and it's likely to be a hit to the lower extremities instead of the bullet going upward. So to me, USPSA has a significant PR issue around the fact that they're the most popular gun in, in production and carry optics is in my opinion, being holstered thousands of times every weekend at USPSA matches in an unsafe condition. And option number one would be to say, well, if you're going to have the gun decocked then it needs to have a firing pin block, but there are so many shadow twos out there. That's not really practical. But if you just change the rules tomorrow and say, okay, double single guns can start cocked and locked. Not only would that be safer, you, you would actually not have people lowering the hammer and manually decocking these guns that don't have firing pin blocks and holstering them that way. I think it would also be more more approachable, I think, having someone be able to just buy a double single gun and not have to spend time and money and hassle smithing the, the, the double action trigger pull. They can just run it with whatever the, the factory hammer spring is and all that and just, just go race. In a lot of ways, that's actually more approachable. And so... The more I think about this, yes, I, I, while, you know, w- like I've said, one approach is go back, look at the past. Another approach is look to, to IPSC. The, the third approach is to, to actually look at the guns as they exist in front of us and say, what makes sense? And I don't think, I don't think there's any reason, not that, not that I can think of or not that anyone's expressed to me for, for keeping this carve out for double single guns. And I think there are a number of, of good reasons to just go to allowing single action guns in, in whatever, you know, stock division we we want to talk about because at this point the the aftermarket triggers for striker guns are so good that if you want a three pound walther pdp trigger you can get it if you want a three pound glock trigger you can get it and so having this this arbitrary double single distinction again i think is one of these things where if we keep going down this road it'll look like in retrospect it'll look like we hung on to it too long but on the other hand I do find, you know, there is something to be said for aligning with IPSC. Where does that right balance stand? I don't know. But hopefully what you're hearing and what I'm saying is these are the values that I think we need to work towards and we need to find a consensus that that makes people happy. But to me, going back to just just rolling all the changes back to the way production was in 2017, yeah, at this point, I, I think the horse is out of the barn. I, I don't think that's that's really viable anymore. But I do think if we're going to have a stock, you know, production gun division, not letting you change everything under the sun about it would make sense. Or let's just stop calling it production. Let's call it what it is. But the second topic that I that I wanted to add some nuance to was I I saw some discussion online of the way that the the chrono that I ran the chrono at the North Carolina section last year, particularly around the fact that I refuse to use the quote-unquote correct range commands. And 
before I ran the chrono, I, I read through the rule book. I read through the chrono appendix. I figured out what, what my plan was going to be. And section 45 of the, the chrono appendix says the chrono officer is the CRO for the chronograph stage and issues range commands appropriate to the requirements of the chrono station. Later on in section 52 of the chrono appendix, it lists a recommended procedure that involves giving the make ready command and the unload and show, show clear command. And when I was coming up with my plan for that match, I, it appeared to me, and from my experience going to other matches, the, the make ready command in that context was ambiguous. Am I supposed to load the gun? Am I supposed to set it on the mat? What, what, what am I supposed to do here? Make ready, generally speaking, in the context of a stage is understood, but to me, it seemed like in, in accordance with section 45 that I could give range commands appropriate to the requirements of the chrono station. And so the range commands that I used in a clear, assertive, authoritative, you know, RO voice was at the beginning when the, when the shooter would come up, I would say, set your gun and an empty magazine on the mat. And there was a, a clear, you know, shooting kind of felt mat right in the middle of the chrono table. I was standing, looking at the shooter and, and pointing right at the mat. And then at the end of the, when, when I was done testing the, the chrono procedure, I would lay the gun back down on the mat. I would check that it was empty. To me, the idea of telling the competitor to show me a clear weapon made no sense when I was handling the weapon, right? Unload and show clear makes sense at the end of a course of fire when the competitor is the one handling the weapon, but I don't need them to show me a clear weapon. I'm, I'm holding the weapon. It's on me to make sure that it's clear. So at the end, I would, I would lay their, their magazine and the gun on the mat, and I would tell them to step up, holster your gun, and stand where you are for equipment check. So as soon as they holstered, they would stand right there at the table. I'd take the overlay, just check height and distance from the belt. At that point, the equipment check would be complete. And if everything was fine, then, then chrono would be over. If it were a, a PCC shooter, I would give them slightly different commands. And this actually came, I had to evolve this over the, over the match because this became an issue. I would say, set your PCC on the mat with the flag out and the dot on because people would either leave the flag in and it would be not obvious how to take it out or they would set it down with the dot off and I would have to fiddle with it. And so what I found was just saying again, in this sort of matter of fact, assertive RO voice, set your PCC on the mat with the flag out and the dot on. It was, it was clear people understood how to follow it. Were there six or eight people who came through and, and when I gave them a range command, they said, make ready. And I would just repeat the range command. Yeah, there were a few of those and I just repeated it and everything seemed to be fine. I have since learned that apparently people, I guess what is tilting the balance is people assume that what is done at nationals is the way that it should be done, the way that it is required. And so because I wasn't doing the way that the ROs do it at nationals, that I was doing it the wrong way. And again, what the ROs at nationals do is what is recommended but not required in the chrono appendix. And as anyone who has listened to this knows, there are definitely areas of the rules of NROI's interpretations and everything that that I disagree with. And this is this is one of those places. And so if NROI wants to tighten that up, they want to make they want to make mandatory range commands for the, the chrono station, that is hundred percent within their ability. They can they can amend the rule book. It's evergreen. They can do it immediately if they want to. But from the the plain reading of the rule book right now, what I did was not against the rules. And I think for the 250 some odd competitors that came through who didn't have an issue with it, it seemed perfectly clear. 
again, it was, it was very declarative. And again, to me asking a competitor to show me a clear gun when I'm the one who's just been handling it, it doesn't, it doesn't fit right. There are certain actions that make sense on a stage and then there, the chrono station is, is different. And so I felt like the range commands that I was giving were appropriate to the requirements of the chrono station and complied with the rules. I understand that that people are twitchy about not wanting to get DQ'd for taking their gun out before they hear the words make ready. And in in retrospect, you know, if I had to do it again and someone and I was doing this and I gave the command to set the gun down on the mat and someone looked at me and said, make ready or ask, you know, can I get a make ready? In the future, I'll probably just say make ready if that's what will sort of grease the skids and and get on with the get on with the process. Fine. I, I'm not dogmatic about it. If somebody if that is what signals to the competitor that they can safely handle their firearm, even though, in my opinion, it doesn't make sense in that context, if it gets the job done, that's what matters. I'm not trying to to stand on ceremony or or stroke my own ego. I just genuinely am trying to do what I think is expedient and clear. And so in that case, if someone is expecting to make ready and they look at me and ask for it, I think I'll probably just give it to them and and just move on. That's probably what I would do going forward. At the time, I had my plan. I stuck to my plan as shooters cycle through. You know, I mean, when you're running a match like that, you just you 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 try to keep the process consistent. But upon reflection, after having a few months to to think about this and and see the reaction and understand where people are coming from, I I think I think uh yeah I think a make ready if that's what people are looking for as the sort of signal that they can handle their gun, then let's just do that and and move on. Works for me. As the last item here, uh, as I'd mentioned on a previous podcast, after Scott Arnberg, the incoming Area 3 director, after he participated in his in his first board of directors meeting, he did a debrief video podcast with Joel Park of Practical Shooting Training Group, and I believe that one was posted on the Practical Shooting Training Group YouTube channel. And I actually, it was funny, uh, I was recording a uh, an interview with David Riddle of the Casual Shooters podcast earlier this week, and we actually were talking about the fact that there he had he had Scott had talked about doing these after each meeting, and we hadn't seen another one, and sort of wondering what that meant about were the the screws being put to him about the level of transparent transparency that he was giving to the the members, and it turned out that actually almost as soon as we were done recording that this this came out, but this iteration of the the show actually has Scott and Joel as well as Yemen talking through the basically doing a, a rundown of the minutes of the meeting as posted and this was the the series was actually two meetings to right leading up to the the deadline for the the budget to be finalized for the year and just basically talking through the agenda items with Scott and Yemen giving some context around some of the items Honestly, they were they were still both pretty tight-lipped about most things, not really saying much about what was behind each item, giving a little bit of context. I still think this is progress in the right direction. I still would would rather have this information than not. And even not going especially deep on any one of the agenda items, the, the podcast is still over an hour long. So I think if you are interested in somewhat more information about what's happening in these board meetings and you want to hear Scott's thoughts on things and his take on things as well as Yemin's and you can sort of take what they say at face value and you know for for what it's worth I still think it's useful information the 
video version, which I think is interesting to watch to see people's facial expressions, uh, is on the PSTG YouTube channel, but they are also posting these on the training group live RSS podcast feed, which I was not actually subscribed to because that's the one that used to be, you'd only get half the episode and the rest would be behind the paywall and you'd have to log in and, you know, watch the Vimeo video to get the whole thing. I, so I was, I was actually not subscribed to that feed, but I am now because I believe that is the, the plan is going forward. These episodes will be posted there. So if this is something you're interested in, if you want some more transparency about what's happening in these, in these board meetings, again, it's over an hour, but I think it's, it's worth a listen. That wraps up this episode of short course. My email is bennettberryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.